Good morning. Today's reading will be from Acts. So please open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 19. We'll be reading verses 8 through 20. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jews, exorcists, undertook to to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know. And Paul I recognized, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let us pray together as we come to the word of our God this morning. Father, we read at the end of this passage that in the wake of all of these magnificent things that your Holy Spirit was doing in great divine power, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And as we come before your word this morning, we do recognize and acknowledge that it is your word, not just words about you, but words breathed out by you and full of divine power full of living and active spiritual energy to transform our lives by the renewing of our minds. And so, Father, we pray, would you illuminate the meaning of these words to us? Would you help us to understand? Would you help us to trust? Would you help us to believe and lean upon your word with the full weight of our lives? Would you help us, Father, to not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word also? Continue your work in us, and may the words of my mouth this morning and the meditations of our hearts today be pleasing in your sight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So if you look at your bulletins, the title of the sermon today comes out of that final verse in our reading that Justin just read this morning, verse 20 of the text where Luke records the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And that verse serves as kind of a summary statement of what we read is happening up in verses 8 through 19. And I love the way that the Greek words that Luke wrote in verse 20, I love the way that these words read. Listen. The word so there at the beginning of verse 20 is the Greek word hutos, which means thus, or more specifically and especially in this context, it means in this way. So Luke is saying in this way, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily, referring back up, see, to everything that was going on in the previous verses. As God was doing these amazing things, and because God was doing these amazing things, the Word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And the word increase 
is the Greek word oxano, which means to grow, like a tree grows, like a plant grows. And it carries with it the sense not just of, of a little bit of growth, not just a small bit of growth. This, this word means to grow in a big way, in an abundant way. And so this word carries the sense of, of something being made great through its growth. And when it's used in a, a sort of a horticultural context, it's often translated to flourish, which is how I chose to translate it here for you in the title of the sermon. The word of the Lord wasn't just growing minusculely, not, not just increasing in small ways. It was, it was flourishing abundantly all throughout Asia. Even as Luke says in verse 10, look at verse 10 where he tells us that Paul's teaching about the kingdom continued daily in Ephesus and had such a profound impact over the course of two years there in Ephesus that literally all of the residents of Asia... Think about that. All of the residents of Asia, not many, not most, all of them heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks living everywhere in the province of Asia. That's amazing, right? Not just the residents of Ephesus. That would be amazing enough if Paul's devotion to the teaching of the word of God every single day for several hours a day during two years' time, if that succeeded in causing every single person in Ephesus to hear the word, that would be amazing. But, but the ministry of the word thrived and flourished even way more prolifically than that as people were coming to Ephesus from all around Asia and hearing the word proclaimed and then they were going back to all parts of Asia and taking that word with them. And so it was spreading so prolifically that literally all of the residents of Asia heard it. That's amazing. The word of the Lord wasn't just increasing. I feel like Bible translators sometimes just want the most literal word that they can but it doesn't capture the, the heart and the feeling and the color and the flavor and the impact of what Luke's trying to record here. It wasn't just increasing, it was flourishing there in Ephesus and all throughout the province of Asia. And the other word that I love in verse 20 is that word prevail there at the end of the verse. It's the word eskuo. And it means to be able. It means to be competent. It means to have power. And very often, this word is used in a military context of a well-trained, well-prepared, very powerful army exerting power over an enemy in a way that causes them to prevail, to win, to be victorious. And that's what Luke is recording the Word of God did here. And he couples this word with the Greek word kratos, which means mighty. And in fact, the word kratos comes at a, a, a previous position, place in the sentence, where it's really qualifying both the words prevail and flourish. And so what Luke is telling us is that in this way, in, through what God's doing in this passage, the word of the Lord was powerfully and mightily flourishing and victoriously prevailing over any opposition that was standing up against it. And what an encouraging thing that is for us to set our minds on here today. That's what I want us to think about as we work through these verses, mainly verses 11 through 20, which paint such a vivid picture of the massive opposition that does stand against God and against His kingdom and against His word in this world that we're living in, in these days that we're living in. But most significantly and most importantly, this passage reveals to us that as massive as the opposition against God and His word is in this world, the word of the Lord wields and exerts much more power such that it flourishes in the midst of the opposition. It prevails victoriously against all of that opposition. And again, what, a, what an awesome encouragement that is. What a great source of strength it is for us to realize as we live during these evil days in this present darkness that the word of the Lord prevails, that the word of the Lord flourishes. Now, 
So much of what we see happening in these verses has to do with the spiritual and satanic powers of darkness that exist in this world, doesn't it? Here in this, ver- in this passage, evil spirits were being cast out of people by the Apostle Paul. They'd been inhabited by demons and he was able to, to cast those demons out of them. And when some unbelieving Jews tried to sort of co-opt that apostolic and authority and ability and power of Paul and exercise demons themselves, the demons prevailed over them in verses 13 through 16. And that horrifying display of demonic and satanic power caused, understandably, caused great fear to strike the hearts of everyone who was living in the city of Ephesus. And that provided this wonderful opportunity for the name of Jesus to be extolled as the greater power, as the higher authority in verse 17. And that name and the preaching of the word of the Lord caused many people to turn to Christ and to forsake all of their occultic practices and to begin walking in the way of Jesus instead in the power of the Holy Spirit and in obedience to God and obedience to His Word. And in this way, as the name of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God prevailed over the satanic powers of darkness, in this way the Word of the Lord flourished and prevailed mightily in Ephesus and all throughout Asia. What an encouragement as we live in these days of darkness that are evil and full of Satan's influence all around us. Don't deny that Satan is real. There's a famous old quote from a 19th century French writer. He wasn't a Christian. He was just a a writer of novels and short stories. And he says in one of his short stories that the loveliest trick of the devil is to convince you that he doesn't exist. You might have heard that line in a certain movie, but it came from a short story that was written in France in the 1800s. The loveliest trick of the devil is to convince you that he does not exist. Just like a thief would be more than happy for you to go to bed believing that no one's going to break into your house. And so you leave all of your doors unlocked. He would love that so that he could just come in unhindered and take everything that you own. And just like that, Satan is more than happy for the world to fall under the delusion that he is not real. That belief in a devil and in demons is just wild superstition. But he is real. And he does exist. Because God's word tells us so and reveals to us the reality of his existence and warns us against all of his schemes and teaches us how to resist him that he might flee from us. Now the other thing that Satan is perfectly happy for people to fall under the delusion of, if we're going to believe that he's real, is that he would love for us to believe that he's more powerful than he actually is And that God and the Holy Spirit and the Word of God is less powerful than it actually is so that we would be more afraid of the devil than we are confident in the power of the Word of God. And sadly, that's the case for many, many people. Many, many Christians even harbor more fear of Satan in their souls then they have confidence in the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit and the name of Jesus Christ in their souls. And so this passage today, I think, is a very, very important one for God's children to understand. Ever since the beginning, ever since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, human beings have lived in rebellion against God. And Psalm chapter 2 describes that rebellion as people trying to burst God's bonds apart and trying to cast 
his cords away from themselves. Rebellion against God is the futile human attempt to live in self-imagined freedom. I don't want God controlling me. I don't want God as my Lord and King and authority. I want to be free to do whatever I want. And so people who imagine that they've burst God's bonds and cast His cords away, they imagine that they're living in true freedom. But the reality is the exact opposite, isn't there? They're not truly free at all if they're living apart from God's rule and reign and law. Living apart from God, living apart from His sovereign kingship over our lives is the opposite of freedom in reality. If you decide that it's a good idea to jump out of an airplane with a big bulky parachute strapped on your back, and as you're falling towards the earth, you might think that this big thing on your back is heavy and cumbersome, and that pulling it off of yourself and casting it away from you is a good idea so that you can be free to soar through the air without anything weighing you down or restricting you. You might think for a while that that's what real freedom is. But you would be absolutely wrong, wouldn't you? Because freedom from the parachute is irrevocable bondage to the law of gravity. And what you might imagine to be the freedom of soaring like a bird unencumbered through the air, is not soaring, it's plummeting at terminal velocity towards the ground and towards certain death. Only fools say there is no gravity as they jump out of an airplane. Only fools say there is no ground for me to encounter. Only fools say I don't believe in parachutes. Only fools say in their hearts, there is no God. There is no devil. There is no hell. Freedom from God, freedom from His law, freedom from His word, freedom from His sovereign kingship and lordship and reign is only just bondage to sin and death and to the devil. Everyone who practices sin, Jesus says in John chapter 8, is a slave to sin. And the irrevocable wages of sin is everlasting death. Romans 6.23 And no one wants image-bearing human beings to die eternally. To go into everlasting destruction. No one wants that more than Satan wants that. That's his goal. That's his passion. That's what he spends every minute of every day working for. He was a murderer from the beginning, Jesus said, also in John chapter 8. Tempting Adam and Eve in the garden was just the beginning of thousands of years of tempting people to rebel against God and, and, and cast His cords away from themselves and do what's right in their own eyes, craving autonomy, craving freedom in a way that seemed right to them but in reality, leads straight towards everlasting destruction. The whole world, Jesus says, 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He's real, he's here, and he's working in overt ways and subtle ways to lead people away from Christ and away from God and into the jaws of eternal condemnation and death. And in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul reminds us, you were dead, all of us, were dead in trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world and according to the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan, the spirit who is now working in the sons of disobedience. So this is the reality. This is the dark reality that lies beneath the surface of everything that we see going on in this world today. Behind the scenes, Satan is manipulating all of it by manipulating fallen sinful human beings and influencing their minds and their wills 
such that they walk contrary to God's will. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, natural man, sinful man, man, man born in sin, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. Without the Holy Spirit's illumination, people who are spiritually dead in their trespasses, people who are unregenerate, are under the influence of Satan. All of them, all of us were. Satan is the one who blinds the minds of all unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. That's how Satan operates. What he's doing in this world is waging war against God and waging war against God's people in this world by tempting us and by deceiving us with various forms of worldly temptation and false teaching and philosophy that would lead people away from the truth of God's Word. And so, the strategy that Paul lays out in the New Testament for fighting against Satan, for, for, for waging war back against him and against his counterfeit kingdom of darkness in this world, Paul spells it out in 2 Corinthians 10 and verses 3-5. through 5. He says, even though we walk in the flesh, right? We live in a physical body. We live in phys- the physical world. We're not waging war according to the flesh. Same thing as he says in Ephesians 6. Our, our battle isn't against flesh and blood. Our fight isn't a, isn't a physical or political fight. In 2 Corinthians 10 he says, The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but our weapons have divine power to destroy Satan's strongholds. What are those strongholds that Satan sets up, those fortresses that Satan sets up in this world in order to wage war against God? Paul spells it out. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that is raised against the knowledge of God so as to take every thought captive. To obey Christ. That's what's going on. Satan is waging a war for your mind in this world. As citizens of the kingdom of God living in this world, we must fight back against the darkness, which means waging war against the thoughts and the ideas and the arguments and the lofty, arrogant proud philosophies that Satan seeds and establishes in this world as strongholds, as fortresses in his warfare against God and truth. And you know what I'm talking about. All kinds of theological ideas that contradict what God's Word reveals about the true nature of God and the true nature of sin and the true nature of the Gospel. All kinds of moral ideologies in this world that stand in stark opposition to what God reveals in His Word. These are satanic strongholds that we're supposed to tear down, that we're supposed to storm and assault with the power of the sword of the Word of God and slay those ideologies and take them captive to the obedience of Christ. And that's only possible with the divinely revealed truth of Scripture. So Satan, first of all, exerts his power and influence in this world by manipulating human thoughts, by building up these strongholds of false ideology and philosophy in the world. And he also works by manipulating the human will. That doesn't mean he can control people like puppets. He can't force them against their wills to do what he wants. But he is a master at manipulating human beings by way of temptation. And temptation, biblically, can either come from from outside of us by way of things in this fallen and corrupt world that would tempt us to go astray from God's will. 
And it can also come from inside of us by way of our own fallen sinful natures. Which tempt us to do things that the devil desires instead of doing things that God desires. Jesus said to the Pharisees, that's exactly what you guys are doing. He said, you, listen to him in John 8 again, talk to the Pharisees. Listen to him wage war. Jesus said, you are of your father who is the devil and your will is to do what your father desires. That's what people who live in bondage to sin do. That's what people who are spiritually dead in trespasses and sins do. That's what people who are blind to the truth of God, that's what they do. They're children of wrath, Ephesians 2 says. They're children of Satan, Jesus says in John 8, 44. And as children of the devil, they are chips off the old block because their will is manipulated and tempted by all of the dark and wicked desires of the devil. And that's what's going on all around us in the world today. And again, it is the Word of God and the Word of God alone. It is only the living, active Word of God that is divinely powerful to prevail over the devil, to squelch temptations, to transform heart desires, and to transform lives and conform them to the image of Christ and His glory. And all of that is what we see happening here In Acts chapter 19, we see the power of God's word on massive display as it is proclaimed, as it is confirmed by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, as it confronts and assaults the forces of darkness in Ephesus and brings conviction for sin, and as it ends up dominating the powers of the devil in the lives of God's people. Since Satan is real, Since Satan is building this counterfeit kingdom of darkness in this world, and since Satan is in that way called the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, since he is a roaring lion who roams about seeking to devour people, and since the only power that can stand against him is the word of God, which can tear down satanic strongholds that are raised up against the knowledge of God. Since only God's Word can transform people's lives by raising them to newness of life and renewing their minds. Since all of those things are true, the Word of God needs to be absolutely unleashed into this world in all of the fullness of its divine power. And the first step, obviously, in unleashing the Word of God is simply proclaiming the Word of God. And that's why we see Paul so devoted to doing exactly that everywhere he goes all throughout the book of Acts. Very often, remember, it was Paul's strategy to go into the synagogues in various places on the Sabbath day once a week in order to proclaim the Word of God to the Jewish people who had an understanding already of the Old Testament Scriptures and and hopefully by the illumination of the Holy Spirit would see their fulfillment in Christ Jesus, the true Messiah. So Paul would go once a week into the synagogue on the Sabbath and then we learned from his time in Corinth, he would spend the rest of the week, the rest of the days of the week, working, laboring as a tent maker in in order to raise the money that he needed to be able to live and to eat and to lodge and to travel from place to place. And that's what he was doing in Ephesus too when he first got there. This is what we saw last week. He spent three months going to the synagogue every Sabbath day and speaking boldly, reasoning with people, and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But verse 9 says that after three months' time, some of these unbelieving Jews became stubborn and persisted in their unbelief, even though it had been clearly proven to them that their understanding of the Scriptures was wrong, that their rejection of Christ was wrong, that Christ clearly is the true Messiah in fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament prophesied, even though it's been shown to them they were stubborn, obstinate, stiff-necked, hard-headed in their unbelief. And they started speaking evil, it says, of the way. That was an ancient 
sort of label for Christianity because Jesus Christ declared Himself to be the way, the only way, the only truth, the only life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. And these Jewish people were speaking evil of Christ and evil of the way, evil of the gospel, evil of the church. So what does Paul do? Once again, verse 10, he withdrew from the synagogue. We've seen him do stuff like this before, haven't we? Shaking the dust off his sandals, shaking the dust off his garments when people become obstinate and, and, and intractable in their unbelief and start actively opposing the Word of God and the Gospel, Paul just says, you're in God's hands now, I'm going to move on. And here, instead of moving on to a new city, Paul stayed in Ephesus and moved to a new venue in order to preach and teach. He left the synagogue where only the Jews met once a week, and he went to a place called the Hall of Tyrannus. Tyrannus was probably a local philosopher a local lecturer, and he, and he had a lecture hall where crowds of people could come and where he would address them, and Tyrannus apparently let Paul come in at a time when Tyrannus wasn't lecturing so that Paul could be able to proclaim God's word about the kingdom and about the gospel. Tyrannus was interested in this, and God used this powerfully. And so Paul, having to work to support himself, having to labor making tents, also went to the hall of Tyrannus in Ephesus, it says, every single day for two full years, preaching every single day in order to proclaim the Word of God, in order to assault the kingdom of darkness and lay siege to the strongholds of Satan. And again, the result by the sovereign will and and power of God through the Word was was that literally everyone living in Asia ended up hearing the Word. That doesn't mean everybody responded in repentance and belief, but as many, many people came to Ephesus and heard the Word being preached, they took the Word with them wherever they went throughout Asia. It started to spread like wildfire. It started to flourish all throughout the entire region. And so, the entire province of Asia was evangelized in two years' time because of the preaching of one man who can't take credit for any of it because what he was preaching was the Word of God. And when we unleash it, when we proclaim it, it begins to flourish. The church in the city of Colossae was founded during this time. We have the book of Colossians, which Paul wrote to that church in our Bibles. And he tells, he tells us in the book of Colossians that he's writing to this church, that he's writing to a church that he's never met. He'd never been to Colossae. He wasn't the one to preach the gospel to those people in Colossae. He wasn't the one responsible for the first converts in Colossae. He wasn't the one to plant the church. He'd never even been there when he writes a letter to them. The church in Colossae was a church that was started and established by people who had heard the word being proclaimed in Ephesus and then they brought it back to Colossae, proclaimed it themselves and caused by God's great sovereign power many people to be saved and a church to be established. The seven churches from the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, were most likely also started and planted and established during this period of time. As the word of God was unleashed... And as Satan's kingdom of darkness came under siege, came under assault in Asia because of the preaching of one faithful man. So the word must be proclaimed. And never doubt the ability of the word once it's proclaimed. Remember, Paul said, I came to the Corinthians in fear and trembling. It had nothing to do with my ability. All I did was just sort of nervously tell you the word and the word did its work. All you got to do is speak the message and preach the truth and let the Word of God do its thing. It starts with proclamation. And then secondly, verses 11 and 12 tell us that as Paul was proclaiming the Word there in Ephesus, God was sovereignly and supernaturally 
confirming that it was His Word with these extraordinary miracles that He was performing through the Apostle Paul. Notice who's doing the miracles. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were being carried away to the sick. And their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Notice there Luke is clear and he's careful to make it clear that it was God doing the miracles and not Paul of his own initiative or of his own volition like, like happens so many times with people who claim to be able to do miracles. They're, they're doing it by their own will and they're doing it for their own glory. In the book of Acts, in the days of the early church, this was God's standard way in the time of the apostles, in the, in the formative days of the New Testament church before the scriptures were completed. This was God's standard way of confirming that what the apostles were teaching and preaching wasn't just their own ideas, wasn't just their own thoughts or words about God, this, that, that it was actually God's word, it was actually God's revelation about himself because God was confirming it through, through these miracles that the apostles could perform. Well, it doesn't work that way anymore, at least not ordinarily. Now that God's Word has been completed, now that all of the Scriptures that He sovereignly deigned to to reveal have been revealed, have been written down and preserved in the Bible, the Bible itself, the revelation itself, the, the Word of God itself in the Bible is the divine standard by which all teaching by which all truth claim is, is measured. But they didn't have that standard in, in Paul's day. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. The Scriptures hadn't been completed. And so in Acts, in the absence of a complete Scriptures, God used these supernatural signs and wonders to authenticate His Word as the apostles were preaching it and teaching it and writing it down in letters. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul calls those miracles signs of a true apostle. And the word signs means a a badge that would identify him as a true apostle. An ID that would identify him as a true apostle and messenger of God. Well, today there are no more apostles. There are no people who have personally met Jesus Christ in the flesh and been commissioned by Him as messengers and ambassadors of the kingdom. And now that there are no apostles, and now that there is an all-sufficient Word of God in the Scriptures that's complete, those kinds of signs and wonders aren't needed any longer on an ordinary basis. Because now the Word of God confirms itself. Now the Word of God authenticates itself. And it does it by performing the greatest miracle of all, which is the raising of dead souls to newness of life in Christ Jesus and the opening of blind eyes to the truth of God's word. But in Paul's day, God worked this way. He worked powerfully. He worked spectacularly through Paul to confirm that what Paul was proclaiming was truly the word of God. Now look, the people who were living in Ephesus were people whose understanding had not been developed yet. They were, and this was typical of people living in the Mediterranean world of that time, they were very, very superstitious people. And the word superstitious just means they had an understanding that that supernatural things go on in this world, but their, their understanding of how the supernatural world operates was twisted and distorted in various ways. And so steeped in superstition that was rooted in pagan misunderstandings and misrepresentations of God, these people not fully understanding that Paul was just a a channel, a conduit of God's power working through him. These people thought Paul was the source of the power, that it was oozing out of him. And so they were literally taking handkerchiefs that Paul had used to mop his brow, to wipe the sweat off his brow while he was working, and, and aprons, it says that that means clothing that he would wear while he was working in the tent-making trade. 
and it would get sort of stained with his sweat. They were taking that because they thought that, that the energy was coming out of Paul, and if they could just capture it in some clothing and take it to the sick, the sick could be healed. And so they're doing that, and by God's mercy, he's working in spite of their ignorance, and the sick people were actually being healed by the power of God, not by the power of the handkerchief or the power of Paul, but by the mercy of God. Again, that's not the way it ordinarily works, but God was working in extraordinary ways. Now today, there are all kinds of people who take these verses as a kind of prescription of how to do miraculous things. And there are all kinds of false teachers, there are all kinds of charlatans out there who claim to be able to heal people because they've got supernatural energy oozing out of them. And so they'll take a cloth and touch it to their skin and mail it to you in exchange for a check that you're supposed to mail to them in order to support their ministry. And in their ignorance and in their duplicity, they're denying the Word of God. They're denying the power of God. See, what Luke is recording here is a description of what God was doing in an extraordinary way. And it was not a prescription of what Christians should expect to have happen or do ordinarily. What God was doing through Paul was was working powerfully and not just to heal people from physical diseases and mercifully deliver them from being inhabited and tormented by evil spirits. Ultimately, what God was doing was validating and authenticating and confirming the veracity and the reality of the Word of God and the fact that Paul was Jesus' apostle, a genuine messenger sent from God and that the message that he was proclaiming was the very Word of God to them. Now look at verses 13 through 16 where Luke tells us that for some of the people in Ephesus, the superstition that they harbored in their minds went a full step, went a full country mile beyond people just sort of misappropriating Paul's sweat rags. It says that there was a group of itinerant Jewish exorcists who were living in Ephesus. These weren't believers in Jesus. They were Jewish people who traveled all around Asia claiming to be able to exorcise demons, to be able to cast out demons from people who had been inhabited by evil spirits. These guys were like Simon Magus. Remember back in Acts chapter 8? These guys thought that supernatural power is like a spiritual substance that just sort of exists in the ether in the world and, and you can contain it and you can harness it and you can use it through all kinds of mystical rites and, and occultic rituals if you know what you're doing. That's what these guys were like, and that's what they were doing. And and what God's Word reveals to us, of course, is that there is supernatural power at work in this world, but when people are harnessing it and using it through mystical rites and occultic rituals, what they're doing is participating in spiritual satanic darkness. That's what the exorcists in Ephesus were doing. And that's the polar opposite of the supernatural work that God the Holy Spirit was accomplishing through the Apostle Paul. You do not want to mess around with the spiritual forces of darkness in the ways that these guys were. These guys thought that the power that they were seeing on display in Ephesus, Ephesus was just up for grabs. They thought they could grab hold of it. They thought they could co-opt it and manipulate it for their own ends and for their own glory. Boy, won't everybody think we're amazing if we can do what Paul's doing. Let's, Let's get in on that gig so that they could be recognized as as being something special. So they attempted, they attempted to cast out demons from people by naming the Jesus who Paul was proclaiming sort of as a a mantra. 
using Jesus as kind of a, a talisman to accomplish their ritualistic occultic will. Obviously, these people weren't Christians. They didn't know Jesus. They didn't trust Jesus. They didn't believe that He was their Messiah or follow Him. They just tried to use Him. They just tried to use His name for their own purposes. And it didn't exactly go well for them, did it? Luke says in verse 14 that there were seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Skeva who were doing this. They didn't believe that Jesus was the true Messiah. They'd been rejecting that teaching. They didn't understand the true meaning of the Scriptures. They didn't understand the reality of the kingdom that Paul was preaching because they were spiritually dead in their sins. Because they were suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness. And so, as we've seen Jesus teach, they were children of the devil. And at the same time, they're trying to leverage the supernatural power of God and the divine name and authority of Jesus for their own sinful and and prideful purposes. And we, we, we could spend the rest of our time today, we could spend the rest of the whole day today, we could spend all week if we wanted to talking about the countless examples of false teachers and spiritual frauds and charlatans who do things like this, who, who just try to name Jesus, who just try to use Jesus to invoke the supernatural power of God for their own purposes. Beware of those people in this world. It's not how God operates. And it's not for His glory. And it is only a way through which the devil will deceive. Suffice it to say that when people do things like that, when instead of loving and trusting and following and obeying and submitting to Jesus as their King and their Lord and and putting their confidence in His Word, when they try to use Him for their own prideful agendas, they can expect for it to end up as badly for them as it did for the seven sons of Sceva. Here are these guys, they're running around in Ephesus in their own prideful, self-absorbed unbelief, and they're, and they're trying to exercise demons, cast out evil spirits from people who were under particular influence of Satan, who's the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air. So see, unlike Paul, the sons of Sceva weren't experiencing God Himself working through them. They were trying to do the work that only a God can do on their own, by grasping it for themselves, by co-opting it for their own purposes, and, and simply invoking the name of Jesus. And it didn't go well. Because demons and Satan recognize and tremble before the actual kingship and sovereign authority and power of Jesus, the second person of the Holy Trinity, who is the eternal Son of God. And they tremble also before anyone who Jesus sovereignly ordains to speak and to work through like Paul. But these dudes, these unbelieving sons of Sceva, they weren't Jesus and they weren't Paul. They were not apostles So when they came and tried to exercise demons and tried to challenge the power of Satan on their own terms by just saying the the name Jesus without being in submission to Jesus, they got their world rocked, didn't they? They got their teeth kicked in, didn't they? These fools got pummeled by the devil They try to adjure demons. They try to command demons to do their will. They try to order demons around to do what they say, thinking that just saying the word Jesus is is something that the, the demons are going to have to capitulate to them for. But the sovereign king and the Lord Jesus Christ, he's not a talisman that can be waved around at the forces of darkness in this world. He's not a lucky charm to be invoked in order to accomplish our will in this world. He's not a a genie in a lamp that we can rub and then compel Him to do our will. He's the sovereign God and Lord and King of the universe and of of all of creation. He's the God 
whom the demons tremble. These guys got pummeled by the devil who is greater than them. Because Jesus, they, they invoked his name, but, but he wasn't with them. He wasn't working through them. And so his sovereign power and authority wasn't challenging the power of Satan. And so Satan handed these guys their lunch and kicked them to the curb. The demons say, yeah, we know who Jesus is. We, we hear you using his name and we know him. And we know who Paul is as Jesus' chosen apostle. Who are you exactly? And what they mean is exactly what it sounds like. Listen, if Paul, Jesus' chosen and empowered apostle, if Paul says jump, then we just say how high. And if Jesus speaks to us, then we don't ask questions, but you guys who don't have any actual relationship to Jesus and are just chanting his name, who the heck are you? Who do you think you are? And then the demons proceed to beat the snot out of them, right? Out of the unbelieving, self-willed, arrogant, presumptuous sons of Sceva. The man, the demon-possessed man in whom the evil spirit was, leaped on them. There's seven of them and one of him. And this guy, by the power of this demon in him, leaps on all seven, masters all of them, overpowers all of them, so that they end up fleeing out of the house naked and wounded. They had no power over Satan and his demons, and neither do you. And neither do I. Be careful in this world just throwing around the name of Jesus and thinking that you have something to do with contending with the devil. Don't mess with the devil. These guys got a beating. All their clothes were ripped off of them. They, they, they were so scared and freaked out, they went running off, battered and bruised and naked into the night. The devil is more powerful than you or me. He is stronger than you or me. In the book of Jude, the, the archangel wouldn't even stand toe-to-toe with the devil himself. And if you try to stand toe-to-toe with him or with any of his demonic forces in your own strength, you're going to get your luggage handed to you and sent packing. You will not, you cannot prevail in your own strength against the far greater power of the devil or demons in this world. But, but, never forget the words of John in 1 John chapter 4. Here's what he says. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. And by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. That's the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now already in the world. Little children, you are from God and you have overcome these evil spirits, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So there are lots of spirits in this world who do not confess the truth of Christ and God, who do not trust that truth. And none of those spirits who refuse to honor Christ as God and Lord and King, none of them are from God. They're opposed to Him. They're against Christ. They are agents and they are emissaries of Satan. And he is roaming around in this world as a roaring lion seeking to devour people with his power and with his deception But the one who dwells in you, the Holy Spirit of the eternal God, is greater, eternally greater than he who is in this world. The sovereign, risen Lord Jesus Christ, to whom you are united by faith in the indwelling Holy Spirit, the one who abides in you, is infinitely stronger and more powerful than Satan or any of his demons could ever hope to be. He's in you. He's abiding in you. And what that means is that you don't have to fear Satan who is roaming around in this world or any of his demons in this world. Because even as we see right here in Acts 19, with all this crazy, scary, occultic, demonic activity going on, as soon as Jesus steps in, the power of the devil is utterly vanquished. 
In the sovereign providence of God Almighty, after the demons thrash on the sons of Sceva, everyone in Ephesus was understandably terrified, rightly so, of these demons and of the satanic powers of darkness in this world. Which resulted in what? By God's good providence. It resulted in them saying, I don't want to have anything to do with the demons or any of the occultic magic that gets us involved with them in any way. And so they all start to turn to Christ instead. They started to believe in the greater power, in the greater Lord, Jesus Christ, and turn away from all of their occultic demonic practices that they'd entertained all their lives. They started to bring occultic books to be burned and the value of those occultic books ended up being massive. The whole culture in Ephesus seems to have been saturated with this. Everybody had one under their, under their bed and they would read it at night and try to lay hold of some spiritual power in their lives. And they're going, man, we've been doing this all wrong and we don't want to mess with the powers of darkness. We want to submit to the Lord of light. So they bring all these books. People in mass were repenting by God's providence of their worldly, satanic, occultic pasts and embracing the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Because in God's providence, the power of Satan had terrified them. And so they turned to the power of God. And so the message is always remember that Satan is not equal to God in authority or power. He is more powerful than you. Don't mess with him on your own. Don't think that you have some authority over him by virtue of the fact that you have whatever knowledge you have. He's more powerful than you, but he is not equal to God in power or authority by any measure. He does not exercise absolute influence or authority in this world by any means, by a long shot. Don't be afraid of him. Don't be afraid of him. Peter says, the devil is a lion who roars and wants to devour you. But don't forget that he's a lion who is on a leash. And that that leash is always firmly held by the almighty hand of the sovereign God. Satan doesn't always get what he wants, right? Satan doesn't always have everything his way in this world, right? Because ultimately God is the one who is sovereign over all things, including Satan. Don't we learn that from, for instance, the opening chapter of the book of Job? By God's declaration, Job was the most righteous man who lived on the earth in his day. But Satan claimed that Job only trusted God, Job only followed God because God had blessed him with so much good stuff in this world. Of course he trusts you. Look how lavishly you've given him a, a wonderful life. Take all that away, Satan said, and he'll curse you. And so God gave Satan permission to take it all away. Satan had to ask. Satan had no power or authority beyond what God granted him. So God gave Satan permission and Satan took all of it away from Job. Every good thing in his life destroyed. And even though Job was racked with agony, even though Job questioned God at times, even though Job's faith wasn't perfect in responding to his suffering, he never cursed God. And ultimately, through God's sovereign design, through God's word to Job, ultimately Job's faith was increased. Job's faith was built and strengthened so that ultimately Satan's purposes through all of that were thwarted and God's good purpose was accomplished in Job and in this world. So don't fear Satan because he's on God's leash and he only does what God allows him and gives him permission to do. And he always ends up only accomplishing God's purposes anyways. John chapter 12 says that Satan put it in Judas's heart. Satan tempted Judas to betray Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. And so Judas did. And 
So Jesus was arrested, and so Jesus was crucified the next day, and so God's purpose was accomplished. And ultimately, with the best kind of cosmic glorious irony ever, ultimately Satan's purpose was thwarted. The Almighty God is always sovereign over the devil. Satan is not the sovereign one. Satan does not have autonomous or absolute power or authority in this world. Satan is a leashed lion. And the king who holds that leash came into this world in order to confront and to challenge and to assault and to lay siege to and ultimately to conquer the devil. The kingdom of darkness will not and cannot possibly prevail against the kingdom of the blessed Son of God. The gates of hell will not and cannot prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. We saw this last week, right? The long prophesied king has come. He has established his kingdom in this world and it is growing like a mustard seed greater and greater and the day is coming when he will return and bring his glorious kingdom to a full and final and eternal culmination and there's nothing Satan can do about it. Nothing that in all of his craft and power, nothing that he can do to stop it or thwart it or slow it down. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12 that Satan is a strong man, a big mighty man who has taken people captive in his house in this world. But Jesus is stronger infinitely. So Jesus says that he came into this world. He came and kicked in the door of Satan, the strong man's house, and he bound him, he says there in Matthew 12, 29, in order that Jesus could plunder his house and take human souls and lives out of Satan's captivity and bondage and take them for his own. That's what Jesus has done. That's what Jesus is doing. Is Satan a fearsome enemy? Absolutely. He's a powerful adversary. But never ever forget that he is bound by the almighty power and authority of King Jesus right now in this world and kept from doing what he wants to do the most, which is to keep the kingdom of God and the gospel and the light of truth from spreading all across this earth through the power of the word of God. Just preach it. Just proclaim it. Just let it loose and it will defeat the powers of darkness. Just go and assault the gates of hell with the word of God and let God kick those gates in and set the captives free. Jesus came into this world, 1 John 3 says, in order to destroy the works of the devil. And through the power of his word, He's in the process of doing exactly that. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same. He took on flesh and blood so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death, who is the devil. Isn't that a great word? That's what Jesus did. He came into this world. He took on flesh and blood. He became a human being. He kicked in Satan's door. He bound him by divine supernatural power and authority. He shed his own blood on the cross so that by his death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, who is the devil. So that he might deliver us from our lifelong slavery to sin and our bondage to death. That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus is doing. By His incarnation, by His life of holiness, by His death and resurrection and ascension and enthronement and intercession for His people, He has disarmed Satan and the demons, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15 says. He disarmed the rulers and authorities of this world. He put them to open shame. He triumphed over them, Paul declares. So is Satan real? Is the presence of his demonic forces of of darkness a, a, a reality in this world? Absolutely. You better believe it. You better not deny it. 
He's very real. He's far more powerful than you or I. He's far more than we can handle in our own strength. But far greater, infinitely greater is Him who is in us than He who is in this world. Infinitely greater is the Sovereign King and Lord Jesus Christ and the power of His living and active Word than any power that Satan or his demons can wield in this world. Because King Jesus has bound him, has disarmed him, has rendered him powerless by his own sovereign power and by the word of the living, active God, which is that word above all earthly powers, right? Which is able to tear down Satan's strongholds, which is able to destroy Satan's dominion in this world as the sovereign God, through the power of the word, through the power of the gospel, builds his church so that the gates of hell won't ever be able to prevail against it because the sovereign triune God is king and his kingdom will increase and his kingdom will know no end. His church will be built. The gates of hell will not prevail against God and his kingdom and the flourishing victory and conquest of his sovereign word. And so just like the apostles here just like the people in Ephesus here, abide in the living, active Word of God. Drink deeply of the living, active waters of God's Word and wield the power of His Word and swing the sovereign sword of the Word of God against all of the spiritual forces of darkness in this world. As God works in you and God works through you to tear down Satan's strongholds, to assault the kingdom of darkness, to lay siege to it, storm the gates they will not hold against the word of God. As God will continue to bring all things into conformity to the obedience of Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father God, give us confidence in these things. Would you help us to not only understand these things, but to be greatly empowered by these things, to go forth with all the authority of Jesus who abides in us with His living and active Word, and to wage war against the kingdom of darkness, to storm the gates of the kingdom of darkness, not in a way that is of flesh and blood, but in a way that takes thoughts captive, in a way that challenges all the false ideologies of this world, all of the grotesquely immoral philosophies of this world and false teachings of the devil, all of the deceptions and all of the lies that are rotting and decaying people's minds and lives in this world, that we could confront all of it with the truth of your word and watch as you terrify people with the prospects of eternal condemnation and the powers of the devil and lead them unto repentance and lead them unto life through the power of your word and Holy Spirit and the light of your truth. And so God, our Father, may we trust in the name of Jesus. May we trust in him as our Lord and King. May we trust in his abiding presence as we stand firm in this world against the schemes of the devil and as we stand firm for the truth of your word. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.